And then we're going to turn in our Bibles this morning to Luke 19. This will be the uh, last sermon in our series on the book of Luke, and then we'll pick up again on this uh, in the new year. Take a break for a couple of sermons on the topic of the season that we are in. It's fascinating to me that this text, the text of the triumphant entry of Christ, has a, an amazing and clear connection to the coming of Christ. So we have his coming in birth, then we have his coming to the city of Jerusalem, which really tie together to the purpose for which the Savior came. These texts cannot be separated because one event, the birth of Christ, inevitably leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. So this text is often thought of as the triumphant entry. It takes place during the season of Passover, uh, which is a, a remembering through a festival the sacrifice for Israel of the lambs and the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. Okay, that is the kind of the theme that ties together. And it's fascinating if you start to think about it, it's fascinating how the coming of Christ on that festal day uh, gives us a clearer picture of who he is, a sacrifice for us through whom ultimate deliverance comes to the children of God. Now, this coming of Christ at the Passover is in stark contrast to the previous two entries into the city at Passover. If you think back through the Gospel of John, you'll remember the disciples saying to Jesus, you know, you ought to go up to, uh, to Jerusalem for these Passover feasts and do your amazing miracles there because that's what a real king does. In other words, go grab the limelight, exalt yourself as a king. On two occasions, Jesus refuses such an entry. He comes secretly into the city during the Passover feast. Why? He says to his disciples, that is the case because my time has not yet come. When you come to this third entry into the city during a Passover festival in the third year of Christ's public ministry, everything amps up. It's as if Jesus, in the events, turns up the volume of the voice that is speaking about his true identity and his true purpose in coming. So the question I want you to ask yourself as we go through this this morning, I want you to look at the three ways that Christ is presented in this text. We're going to look at three paragraphs. Each of the paragraphs gives us an insight into who Jesus is. Okay, one is Jesus as a coming king. One is Jesus as a king who mourns. One is Jesus as a judge. Okay, those three texts are going to tie together. And here's what I want you to focus on. How should we respond to the coming king? What should our heart response? What is it that God is looking for from us as his children as we respond to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this event called the triumphant entry? Let's begin reading in verse 28. The Bible says, after Jesus had said this, that's following the parable about the use of God-given resources and judgment that comes for a misuse of God's resources. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany, that's the city where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now you are in proximity to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. You're two miles out. Okay, so this this whole story rides on the crest of a wave that is leading towards the city. And when the city comes into view, the capital city that the king is coming to, everything begins to amp up. 
Okay, there is increasing clarity about who Jesus is. There is an increase in volume of worship and praise that is flowing forward to Jesus. So as they come to the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Now, there's a question that comes up in the text here. And that is, is this simply the foreknowledge, the complete knowledge of Jesus that knows the occult is present and will be made available? Or had Jesus previously communicated his need for this cult at a prior visit in Bethany? We don't know the answer to that question. Okay, here's what we do know. The owner of the cult that has never been ridden, they freely give up that resource at the request of Jesus. All right, that's the one thing we know for sure. That either Christ had planned this ahead of time or it's a, a prescient, some have called it, a foreknowledge that reveals who Jesus is. In either case, we find this very powerful response on the part of the owners. So they uh, give it up. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, and now the city comes into view, listen to what happens. The whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. And then they quote Old Testament scripture. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the other uh, gospel records of the synoptics, the ones that see the same event, record that it starts out with a Hosanna, oh, save. This desire for salvation that is brought about in the presence of Christ. Now, the first picture of Christ then is seen in this coming into the city on the colt of a donkey, on a on a, uh, a newer born, unridden animal, okay? And it's, it's, in this case, it is a donkey. Fascinating, fascinating. The first picture of Jesus we have in this text is that he is a humble king. And verse 28 tells us that he is going on ahead. He is on mission, going up to Jerusalem. In spite of the troubles that await him there, he pursues the mission of his father. Now, what I want you to notice is this. In this text, Christ has alluded to himself using a very specific, strong title. He uses the title Lord to refer to himself, which is to talk about the supreme ruler. So when they, they go and they request the colt, what do they say? The Lord needs it. And the immediate response of the owners is what? If the Lord needs it, it is, it's available. And we see in that, we see somewhat of a response on the part of those that owned things that Jesus requested. Okay, and there is this immediate and free giving of that cult to the purposes of the king. The other thing we notice is that this cult has not been written on, which is to indicate at some level it is reserved for a sacred or unique task. That the first one to ride on this will be the first one 
in this world. He is king of kings and lord of lords. All right, so this is the picture. But then we see this ramped up response, this loud volume that comes in worship and praise to Christ. And it causes us to think of a text from the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. And I would encourage you in this holiday season, in this season of remembering the coming of Christ, go to the book of Zechariah and read through it, looking for hints of who Jesus is as the coming king. Zechariah 9.9, I'll just read this text for you. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes. He is righteous. He has salvation. He is gentle and riding on a donkey. Then I want you to think about this. When a Roman king or a Roman emperor or a Roman dignitary came to town, what was it like? Probably seen the movies, right? You have grand stallions and chariots and, and, and these columns of soldiers to say something about how impressive this person is. And I, I thought about this. I thought about someone like Hitler who tried to make himself look like something. What did he do? He would run columns of his, of his military equipment through cities and villages to make a statement through other countries, to make a statement about who he was. Because without those things, he was nothing. Now contrast that to the coming of Christ. He doesn't need to make a show. He doesn't need to amp it up. The crowd takes it up in response to the truth of who he is. He's a king coming, but he is a king who is humble, not arrogant, not oppressive. So the question that, that, that starts to float then in your mind is, okay, how do you respond to a king who comes like this? Now, we see the disciples' response. They bring the cult to Jesus. They disrobe themselves and make their robes, their clothing, the seat of the king. I find it even more fascinating that as the narrative moves ahead and the cult begins to go down the road towards Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, what do the people do? They take off their cloaks and spread them out in front. What an amazing picture. Now, I came across a scene of an accident three years ago on Route 78. A car had gone off the road, kind of went down into the mud and then launched about 70 feet, landed upside down, facing back the other way. Now, I'm not one that likes all this kind of stuff and blood and accidents. So my first reaction is to keep going because I was taking someone to the airport. Okay? Got around that car. They kicked out the back window. Got three people out of the car. The lady in the car was obviously very, very shaken and injured. So I was wearing a coat that I had that day. Okay? You know what I did? I didn't sit there and think of great sacrifice. I paid $19 for the coat. I got it from my brother. Okay? Just for clarification. Honestly, that thought didn't run through my mind, but what did I do? I disrobed and put that coat on the ground to pull that lady out from under the car. What was that? Well, in New Testament terminology, they call it something of an honorific. It's the giving of honor. It's deference to the presence of someone greater or the presence of someone in need. It works in both ways. So what's happening in this disrobing? It sounds familiar if you think of the Old Testament, doesn't it? When David danced before the Lord, what did he do? He took off any symbol of who he was and honored God with the full giving of himself. And in this case, there is a response. And it's interesting because three responses are going to come to this entry of Christ and to this 
this uh, setting of worship that is flowing over the coming of Jesus on a cult, three responses. One is the disciples. The disciples, I will say, give the appropriate response. I think they're thinking in terms of Zechariah 14, 4 through 5. I want you to think about this text. Okay, because as Jesus crests the Mount of Olives, sees the city of Jerusalem, everything in the setting begins to change. Something is in the minds of the Jewish readers of the Old Testament that, that attaches to Jesus' biblical truth. That is for believers. Zechariah 14, 4 through 5. Speaking of the coming of the Messiah. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Then the Lord God will come with all his holy ones with him. A day of justice and victory is coming. So for the crowd, what was it? This is the glorious day. They were reading too much into it because they didn't understand the reason for Christ's first coming. And they were reading much of his second coming into his first coming. The disciples are, are kind of caught up in this. And so what do they give? And I want you to think of the three responses to this humble king. The first one is the disciples who I believe give true worship. And what happens? They lead out. Okay? They bring the cult to Jesus. They take off their robes and they start something. Okay? They start something. They start this response of the crowd, which I think kind of joins in with which what I will call on the second phase here, first of disciples, true worship. They know that Christ is on a mission. They know that Christ is going up to Jerusalem. And so they scatter their cloaks, a red carpet, an act of homage, an act of submission, honorific actions for Jesus Christ. And they cry out from Psalm 118, this, this Hillel, this praise song. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. Heaven is moving near to earth in terms of the effect of the coming king. And something very beautiful begins to unfold. And so from the disciples, you find this rising of passionate praise as Christ comes to his city. I think it's fascinating here to note that this praise in heaven and glory in the highest is exactly what you find in Luke chapter 2 at the birth of Christ. Do you remember? The angels and the shepherds' response to the advent, to the coming of Jesus in flesh, is to say glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with men that he is pleased to dwell with. And here you find a very similar response, don't you? That with loud voices. Folks, I, I, I thought of this in relationship to worship. And how, how on a Sunday morning, when we praise God with strong content and passionate singing, how right it feels. And, and I often, on a Sunday morning or in, in the context of a, of a concert like I was at three weeks ago, I often think to myself, if an unbeliever was here at this event experiencing this rising of praise to God that feels so utterly appropriate, how do they, inter in their heart, how do they interpret that? Do you understand what I'm saying? How do they, they see this, and it just seems so fitting and right, and what the disciples are doing in the relationship to the coming of Christ, it just, it fits. It ties in with Old Testament prophecy, and when we sing praises to God, the question becomes, how does that look? Because in your heart, as a, as a human being and as a child of God, you feel this is right. 
This is fitting. It's appropriate to, to pour out on God such glorious worship and praise. Feel right. And that's the question of my heart is, how did the crowd react here? Because we know the crowd is mixed and ambivalent, right? We know in six days, what are they going to say? Give us Barabbas. We don't want a king who is humble in this degree. I mean, they didn't mind him coming in on, the, on, on an unwritten cult. That was an honorific event. But if he's going to pursue a cross, we want nothing to do with him. If he isn't going to throw, overthrow Rome and bring what we want, then we don't want him. And so I would argue that from the disciples, I find true worship, honorific events that cause a wave of honorific events. But there is a question about the crowd's sincerity. There is a serious question about how much of it they really get. Why are they praising him? Well, the text says they're praising him because of all the miracles they had seen. There was so much impressive stuff going on around Jesus that the crowd naturally joined in. But the question is, were they really believing? Well, I think you find out at the end of the week that some of them were. But many of them weren't. So I think the question that starts to emerge in my mind as we come and as we sing and as we worship God is to ask ourselves this question. Is my worship of Christ true? Because here I have a worship service where people are participating, but in a week their true heart will be revealed. Which causes me to realize, you know what, it's possible for me to sing the songs and sing the truth that isn't really true in my heart. That isn't who I really am. That isn't flowing out of a genuine heart that loves God. Nevertheless, their response was absolutely appropriate, which fascinates me. But I will say that it was fickle and ambivalent and, in quotes, appropriate. They did the right thing on cue. The disciples did the right thing as a result of a relationship to Christ. And that will always be the difference. You will find that true worship of Christ will invade and affect every day of your life, not just Sunday morning. It won't just make you feel good. It will change you and challenge you and convict you. That's what the presence of Jesus does. Well, we know from the rest of the account, verse 39, that not everybody is happy with the events on the Mount of Olives. Not everybody is happy that there's a parade. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus. So you kind of get the idea that around Jesus, there are people that are constantly watching to catch him. To, to, to get him in a situation where things aren't right. And they're quick through the life of Christ, aren't they? To point out, to criticize, to critique. And what problem do you have with someone who comes like this? Their problem is with the words that the crowd is speaking. They say to Jesus, teacher, and it's interesting, isn't it? They, don't, they have no regard for Christ. They just know he's a teacher, but he's an inappropriate teacher. He's a teacher, but he's off base. So they call him teacher in this kind of very official way. Like, I never refer to my mom as mother. <laughs> I just like, I don't think I've ever called my mom that. Like, that would just be weird to me in, in, my, in my setting. Because it would be the appropriate thing to say, but it wouldn't be heartfelt. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I love the response of Christ. I, don't you wish you had this kind of inkling? <laughs> okay. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones 
will cry out. Now, what, what does that mean? I think at one level, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, it could be worse. Do you want to go there? What does it tell you? It tells you what Psalm 19 says, doesn't it? The heavens are telling the glory of God. Everything in creation knows that this is the only appropriate response to the creator. This heart of full surrender that praises him as king, as compassionate one, and as judge, and embraces him, falls before him, owns him as Lord and Savior. So disciples give true worship. The crowd gives an ambivalent response, appropriate. The city, typified in the Pharisees, gives a response of rejection. Led by the religious, there is a clear rejection. They declare this praise of Jesus to be utterly inappropriate. In Matthew 21, the Bible tells us they are indignant at this happened. They are furious that what they love to hear was now being poured out on Christ. And Jesus called them on this, didn't he? He said to the Pharisees, he says, you guys love to walk around in the temple with your robes on and have people call out honorific titles. But in a moment, he's going to prove that that honor is inappropriate. And that the honor being given to him and all honor that we give to Christ is the appropriate response to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus says, if they don't sing, the rocks will cry out because heaven is made to respond to the glory of Christ. And you and I are part of this created order. This response to Jesus being praised as king is utterly right and utterly appropriate. Now, the text then moves us to verses 41 and 42. As he approached Jerusalem, so he's coming down the Mount of Olives now in this glorious crowd of people worshiping and praising and giving honor to God. And when he, Jesus, saw the city, this is amazing to me, he wept over it. He literally broke down. And you would think, how odd. I don't know, maybe you've been in circumstances where someone is enjoying a, a beautiful moment. And then they think of the person that's not there or those that aren't there to enjoy it. And there are tears that come in the midst of a beautiful circumstance. For Christ, it's one of those moments where he's being pulled on two sides. Yes, what you're saying about me is absolutely and utterly appropriate. I receive it. And I challenge the Pharisees in their rejection of me. I challenge them in that. And what you're saying is absolutely and totally appropriate. But as he looks at the city, he weeps over it. So here's the second picture of Jesus. He is a compassionate or mourning king. And that's odd to me. That the one riding on the colt has tears streaming down his face. In the midst of being worshipped and praised and adored for all the appropriate, in all the appropriate ways, for all the right things. In the midst of that, tears stream down the face of Christ. And he said, if you... Even you. Now, what's he talking about? He's looking at the city of Jerusalem. He's talking about the people that inhabit it, particularly the religious leadership that is drawing people astray. He says, if you, even you, had only known this day 
what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus as a morning king. Who is Jesus weeping for? Who is he weeping for? You know, it's easy for us to think he's weeping for the poor people of Jerusalem. That's where we tend to go. He's weeping for the people that deserve grace. Right? Not so. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13. Listen to this text. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And whenever Jesus speaks about Jerusalem in that way, he's usually speaking about the leadership that guides the people. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you and your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Folks, I don't know about you, but when I read this text, I see Jesus expressing for people the complete antithesis or opposite of what they actually deserve. While they deserve his judgment, he weeps and expresses a desire for them to turn. But we're getting late in the game here. And this text very powerfully moves forward. It says the days will come. And this brings Jesus sorrow because this this judgment that he's now going to speak of breaks the heart of Christ that it has to be that way. But it is the necessary response of a holy judge to rebellion. Okay, so this is a judgment text, but it is the necessary response of a holy God to human rebellion. And if this response does not come, God is not just. So notice what it says. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What breaks the heart of God? You know what breaks the heart of God first is our sin. Secondly is our failure to repent of it. And the fir- third, the fact that there is a consequence for that. That breaks the heart of God. It causes Jesus to weep. Folks, listen. When you look at a broken world, do you have the heart of Christ? Or do you feel rage and anger as if you are holy and just like Christ? Does your response demonstrate humility and brokenness and hope for the lost? Or are you just a critic without the love of Christ? And see, we can become that way. What is Jesus demonstrating? He's demonstrating the heart of a compassionate king who is the object of their rejection. And yet he weeps for them. And then he gives the reason, end of verse 44, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you which is powerful. Why? Because it tells you that Jesus is self-consciously the very presence of God. He weeps because when he comes, they reject him. And to reject him is to reject God himself. 
Now, here's the connection to Christmas then, isn't it? In Luke and in Matthew, it says that his name, Jesus' name, shall be called Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. And that God with us was meant to be what? Good news. To bring deliverance to who? To all people who would repent and trust in him. What's breaking the heart of Christ? That the religious leadership was leading people astray, away from the hope that was found in their Savior Jesus. And it breaks his heart. Now, when he approached the city, he wept over it. Who is the city? The city is rebels. Why? Because there's hope if they would turn. So maybe you're here this morning, you look at yourself and you say, Tim, I don't think there's hope for me because I am too far gone. My life is too stained and too strained by sin. It's too far gone. What I want you to know this morning is Jesus weeps for you. And Jesus wants you to know that if you would turn to him with true repentance and a broken heart, you sense God knocking at the door of your heart, you turn to him, he will save you no matter what your condition is. Verse 45, it says, having now completed this incredible triumphant entry, he entered the temple. Now, you're going to say this seems hypocritical, okay? Because the one who just revealed himself as a humble king and wept over the city is going to do what? Right? And this is where we wrestle. Right? He is a humble king of kings and lord of lords. He is a weeping king. And he is a judge. And all three he is consistently. Notice what it says. He entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said, my house shall be a house of prayer. Now that my house also is one of the strong indications of the deity of Christ, right? Whose house is this? This is God's house. What did Jesus just say? It's my house. The king has come into his temple. And what I want you to realize is this. Jesus is an incredible lover of humanity, but he is also a just judge. And if all you have is a Christ who simply loves people but never does what is right, you have a charade. You don't have the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus is a God who is just. He is a God who weeps. He is a God who is humble enough to go to a cross to bear the price for your sin. To love you back to himself through his sacrifice. He is that strong and able. But you must know that as you interact with God, you must not trifle. You must not play games. Because he is also a judge. And so in this text, he makes a fascinating statement. He says, my house will be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. Uh, one commentator said this, you have made it a cave for criminals. You have made it a place where people profit at the expense of others. Because basically what happened in the temple area was they would exchange money and then charge a price for the exchange. Okay, or they would sell animals that were approved and reject everybody else's animals, so they would profit off of this. So there was, wrapped up in this rebellion against Jesus, also a, a profit mindset. They were, they were involved in the religious establishment for how it benefited or affected their lives in a positive way. 
Now, this text tells us that Jesus would not abide the abuse, even though his opposition to it would cost him his life. Now, in this, what is Jesus doing? He's controlling the events. He controlled the finding of the cult to bring him into the city. He's going into the city, weeping, but also cleansing the temple, which is a statement of what? His absolute authority over that realm and over that domain. But what's amazing to me is as Jesus does this action of justice, as he confronts the rebellion that is present in the temple, he is confronting a problem that everyone knew but that nobody could change. You see, everybody knew that the Pharisees were abusive, but they were powerless to change it. Everybody knew that they were using people for personal gain, but could do nothing to change it. When Jesus comes on the scene, what does he do? He acts to change the system. He drives them out of the temple, and the text goes on in other places, other gospels, to say he would not let them carry anything through the temple. Now, I want to know what that looked like. Okay, these people are scurrying to gather all their goods and all their stuff and their tables and try to get it all together. He wouldn't let them carry anything. And what's fascinating is that the moment is so poignant and so powerful that the religious establishment is hand. They don't know what to do. Because the king is present. Now, in this case, what, is, what, what do you think the commoner is doing in this case? The, the, those that are there for the Passover festival and celebration, what is their response to this? I think they're saying, oh, however, quietly, yes. Yes, hit him too. <laughs> Stop it. There, there's, why? Because what's happening is just. It's the right thing. And they've lived for years with the wrong thing ruling. And folks, I'm going to tell you what happens. When you live in an unjust circumstance, in your heart, you are naturally longing for someone who can come along and make it right. On Tuesday of this week, I was driving this way on Route 57. And up ahead on the right, I could see a car parked in the entrance of the Franklin Township building. Couldn't make out what it was. Behind me was a guy riding on my tail, okay, and aggravating me. He pulls out and finally starts to overtake me, as Ron Lee would say. And then he passes me, two, three. And I realize the car on the right side is a state police. Now, what I'm usually thinking when people are doing erratic things around me is, where are the police? When you, right? That's what you're thinking. What do you lo- look? Everybody in their heart is longing for justice. That shouldn't go on. That he should get a fine. He should get a penalty. Right? It, nobody's telling you to say that. It's your natural response. And all of a sudden, this state police comes out, and in my heart, I thought, "Oh, I feel so bad for that guy." Oh, no, no. See, here's, here's, here's what we love. We love when people get theirs. Right? Never, we're getting pulled over. We're begging for mercy. Well, if you know I was late, I was blah, blah, blah. Right? But justice was served. And in my heart, and I'm sure for the other five people that he recklessly passed, because there was oncoming traffic, he's kind of hung out there. I thought, what an idiot. Where are the police going to need him? Oh, he's right there. And then this guy didn't want to acknowledge that he was the one being pulled over. He kind of just faded so the cop could go around him. And then the cop kept following him. In my heart, I was, he got the right guy too, okay? 
So there, there's something in us that longs for that kind of justice. Right? That when wrong is done, there should be a consequence. Folks, here's what's amazing about this account. What Jesus is doing is setting in motion what will happen six days plus from this event. What he is doing is being the judge who ultimately brings justice by stepping down from the seat of a judge, disrobing, and taking on human flesh to stand in my place and yours to take the wrath of God that we all deserve. And so sometimes when someone gets pulled over and you're rejoicing, you ought to temper that a little bit. And you ought to say, that not could be, that should be. And as Christ in this text expresses himself as judge, he knows, he knows that this will bring about his death. Because this is treason. To go into the temple and overthrow and declare yourself as the authority is treason. Now what the text says going forward is that the next day he went to the temple and began to teach. Why? Because now he is public and fearless. Because the day that he has come for is now present. And folks, if you can't look at the cross and realize that the death of Christ is for you, is for your rebellion, that he is the judge who averts the wrath that you deserve by stepping down from the bench and standing in your place on a cross to bear what you deserve, you don't understand Christmas. If you don't understand that Jesus took on flesh so that in that flesh he could stand in your place instead of you on a cross and bear the price for your sin, then you cannot rejoice in what we are rejoicing in here this morning. You can't come and lift your voices. I mean, you may do it because it's appropriate. And that's what the crowd did. But at the end of the day, we find out where their allegiance really is. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give him what he deserves. The Christian response is, Jesus took what I deserve. And in that, he is a humble king. He weeps for you. He weeps for me. And the judgment that he could bring upon you, he stood in between you and the judge and took the hit that you deserve. He paid the price for your sin, which is death, so that you could be forgiven and made free. Oh, so here's my question. How do you respond to a king like that? A humble king, a weeping king, a judge who is king. How do you respond? Own him as king of kings in your life and lord of lords. What he, whatever he asks for in your life, say, if you know what, if the Lord has need of it, it's all his. And when you see him moving and working in your life, give him loud praise. Give him thanks. And you remember that the judge who could have condemned you to hell stood in your place and paid the price for your sin, took the wrath that you deserved. Give thanks to God for his son, Jesus Christ. God with us who stood in our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven and free. And when you go out this week and this season, go tell it. Go tell it on the mountain. That the king of kings, the weeping king, the judge, has come. And he stood on a cross and took the price of your sin and offers you a gift called eternal life. You don't deserve it. But he took yours so that you don't have to. Father, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, 